Blog Talk Radio.
And welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is uh, Sunday, October 10th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to another edition of our program. Later on in this program, uh, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the denial by the Ethiopian government over false allegations made by the United States-based cable news network television station. African migrants uh, who are stranded in the North African state of Libya are demanding to be deported to a more secure and stable country. A trial surrounding the assassination of former 
Pan-African revolutionary leader of Burkina Faso, Captain Thomas Sankar, is going on uh, inside this West African state nearly 34 years after his assassination and the coup against his government. And Algeria has denounced the actions of the former colonial power of France, accusing Paris of distorting its imperialist history in North Africa. In the second hour, we listened to speeches delivered at the United Nations General Assembly 76th session. We'll have addresses uh, by the the, uh, government and president of Peru and uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Finally, we will review some of the most pressing and burning issues taking place on the African continent and internationally. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We're going to take a musical interlude, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Nako kate solonga na kolinga yo 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and today is uh, Sunday, October the 10th, uh, 2021. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We just heard uh, the music of uh, the Cam Vive Orchestra. Yes, uh, classic uh, Congolese music. Uh, from uh, 1974. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with a news report uh, that uh, developed over the cable news network based in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States, related uh, to Ethiopian Airlines, the international uh, commercial airways uh, that has uh, tremendous uh, passenger uh, capacity uh now for many, many years. And according to this report, aside from uh, CNN's acknowledgement of no evidence that verifies Ethiopian Airlines' commercial flights uh, carrying any weapons, an aviation expert has tracked down Nima Elizabeth's dangerous lies about the carrier explaining the legality of using civilian aircraft during national emergencies. General U.S. Department of Transportation uh, former inspector Mary Chavo uh, told CNN that it is legal for civilian aircrafts to be used for military purposes during national emergencies. Experts further said that it is right many countries, including the United States, in times of national emergency can declare a civilian airline to become part of the national emergency. Uh, Every country has its own laws. Ethiopia's laws may be very different because the government owns the airlines. Many countries uh, have laws in place to allow the airlines in time of emergency to use commercial airlines, commercial planes to perform military functions. Many countries, including the United States, use the civilian aircraft for military functions. It is perfectly legal, the expert underscored. The United States government used Ethiopian Airlines for military purposes as part of the Afghanistan evacuation effort. Both cargo and passenger planes were used in the operation though CNN has no evidence that commercial passengers were on any of the flights carrying weapons, it was learned. And in North Africa, migrants in the Libyan capital of Tripoli uh, demand immediate deportation to what they describe as a safe location uh, due uh, to the living conditions and detention centers and the ill treatment by Libyan authorities. Dozens of migrants are protested yesterday outside the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees headquarters in the Libyan capital of Tripoli, where protesters held banners. Sudanese migrant Omar Idris claimed that they have been beaten, detained, and imprisoned by the authorities. To immigrate, we registered with the commission, the UNHCR. We lived uh, in Gagaresh, 12 uh, kilometers west of Tripoli. He says we were beaten and taken to jail. And as you can see, now we are still here. Some of us came out from jail yesterday. Uh, We have women and children here and also sick and injured. We are all suffering. And the reason we are here is that we demand immediate deportation to a safe place. The organization said that approximately 10,000 men, women, and children are detained in poor conditions in official detention facilities in Tripoli. UNHCR officials said that tensions uh, with migrants 
demanding urgent aid and her deportation from Libya, resulted in the injury of two staff members and impeded the access of other asylum seekers to the center. According to Musa Kamis, a migrant uh, from Darfur in uh, western Sudan, migrants are not treated equally. I've been in Libya for two years here in Tripoli, and now we've been here for 10 days without water, food, or anything. Why don't they want to let us into the UNHCR office? Only Syrians, Ethiopians, and Eritreans enter, and they haven't let us in or give us any aid or anything. We have nothing. Earlier on yesterday, the International Organization for Migration condemned the killing of six people in one of the capital's migrant detention centers. The development comes a week after authorities rounded up more than 5,000 migrants in a massive crackdown and after the United Nations Commission investigators said abuses and ill treatment of migrants in Libya amount to crimes against humanity. You are listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, in West Africa, uh, 14 men, including a former Bourgogne trial in Burkina Faso, over the assassination in 1987 of Thomas Sankara, the country's revolutionary leader and a Pan-African icon. Near the Thomas Sankara Memorial site where he was assassinated 34 years ago, street vendors and visitors say they expect the trial to shed light on his murder. Dubbed Africa's Che Guevara, Thomas Sankara wanted to decolonize mines in Burkina Faso and across the African continent. But his revolutionary dreams were cut short when he was gunned down in a 1987 coup after just four years in power. The trial of the alleged perpetrators of the assassination, including his former friend, Blaise Campagnoli, who succeeded him as president and went on to rule for 27 years, it opens tomorrow in the capital of Ouagadougou. Despite his short time in power, Sankara remains for many a revered figure. During mass protests, which toppled Campagnari in 2014, young people carried portraits of Sankara aloft, though many had not even been born during the Marxist-Leninist leader's rule. Sankara is a whole philosophy, a way of thinking and being, a way of life. Sankara is a pride of Africa, high school teacher Serge Wadriago said. Today we can say that Sankara represents a compass for the people of Burkina Faso. He is a guide. It is he who blazed the trail of hope for the people. Now, Sankara was born on December the 21st in 1949 in Yako, in the north of the poor landlocked nation. Sankara was raised in a Christian family. His father uh, was a military veteran. He was just 12 when the country gained independence from France. After finishing high school in Ouagadougou, he underwent military training abroad. He was in Madagascar for the 1972 insurrection, which overthrew President Silbert Siranana, uh, considered by foes to be a lackey of former colonial power of France. Returning to his homeland in 1973, Sankara was assigned to train young recruits and stood out while fighting in a border war with Mali in 1974 and 1975. After a coup d'etat in 1980, the new leader, Colonel Zaid Zerbo, appointed Sankara his Secretary of State for Information, but the soldiers' radical views made him quit the government a year and a half later. Sankara was appointed Prime Minister in January of 1983 after another military coup, which led to a quiet power struggle at the heart 
of the military. He was arrested in May of 1983, but was then made president in August after yet another coup, this one led by his close friend, Campagnoli. Aged just 33, Sankara symbolized for supporters African youth and integrity. He changed the country's name from the colonial Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, the land of the honest people. He moved uh, into a rundown presidential palace with his wife and two sons along with his guitar. He was a guitar player, according to his contemporaries. He also brought a secondhand Renault 5 and imposed a small French model as the car for all government personnel doing away with the bigger vehicles. And you can read this article in its entirety on the Pan-African Newswire. And that's going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. Press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time, the publication has uh, distributed thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, various magazines and journals and research reports, as well as blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, uh, this worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program, uh, just go uh, to uh, our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. And uh, that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners uh, via email, through blogs and websites, as well as social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
voice of the legendary uh, Phyllis Hyman, Loving You, Losing You, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, We're going to uh, go back and listen to some of the uh, historic speeches that were delivered at the United Nations General Assembly 76 session debates that took place uh, last month, uh, both in New York City as well as uh, virtually. Many of the uh, addresses uh, were uh, pre-recorded. Uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And, of course, let's listen uh, to uh, the President uh, Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. 
I now give the floor to the observer of the observer state of Palestine to introduce an address by the head of state. Thank you, Mr. President. It is my pleasure to introduce to you the recorded statement of President Mahmoud Abbas, the President of the State of Palestine, before the 67th session of the General Assembly. I wish you all success in confronting the challenges that we are facing in the world and in the State of Palestine. Thank you. In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, Your Excellency, Mr. Abdullah Shahid, President of the United Nations General Assembly, Your Excellency, Mr. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, Excellencies, Heads of Delegations, Members of Delegations, Ladies and Gentlemen, May the peace, blessings, and mercy of God be upon you. This year marks the 73rd anniversary of the Nakba. More than half of the Palestinian people were uprooted from their land and disposed of their property. Myself, my family, and many others still possess the deeds to our land. These deeds are registered as part of the United Nations records. Here is that deed, and many Palestinians carry theirs as they still hold on to the keys of their houses to this day. Nevertheless, we have not been able to recover our properties due to Israeli laws that disregard international law and violate United Nations resolutions, which affirm the right of the Palestinian refugees to return to their homeland and to recover their property and to receive just compensation, most notably as enshrined in Resolution 194. In contrast, Israel, the occupying power, enacts laws and holds court hearings to unlawfully and forcibly displace Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan neighborhoods in Jerusalem which can only be characterized under international law as ethnic cleansing, which is rejected by our people and the international community as a whole and constitutes a crime under international law. This year also marks 54 years since Israel's military occupation of the rest of the Palestinian territory in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip in 1967. This occupation persists, despite having concluded a declaration of principles known as the Oslo Accord to achieve peace and mutual recognition with Israel in 1993. While we remained committed to all of its elements to this day and agreed to every call and initiative to achieve a political solution on the basis of international legitimacy, including the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative and the 2003 Quartet Roadmap, Israel has not honored its obligations under the signed agreements and has evaded participating in peace initiatives and instead pursued its expansionist colonial enterprise, destroying the prospect of a political settlement based on the two-state solution. 
to those who claim that there is no Palestinian partner for peace, to those claiming that we're missing opportunities just for the sake of it, I challenge them to demonstrate that we have rejected even once a genuine and serious initiative to achieve peace. And I accept the judgment of the world in this regard. Ladies and gentlemen, does the Israeli occupying power believe that it can elude its responsibility for the crime of uprooting more than half of the Palestinian people from their land and for committing numerous massacres, killing and maiming thousands of Palestinians in 1948 in Balad el-Sheikh, Deir Yassin, Abu Shusha, Tantura, Ain Zaytun, Qibya and other places does it believe it would evade responsibility for subsequently destroying over 500 Palestinian towns and villages? Does Israel believe it can simply ignore the legitimate rights, including the political rights of millions of Palestinians within and outside of Palestine, the owners and sons of daughters of this land with Jerusalem at its heart? Does it believe it can continue its policies to steal their land, suffocate their economy, and prevent them from even breathing the air of freedom? Does Israel believe it can endlessly promote a false narrative that ignores the historical and present rights of the Palestinian people to their homeland? The crimes and aggressive policies of the Israeli occupying power against our people, land, and holy sites will not derail our people's struggle to achieve their freedom and independence on their land. The colonial regime that Israel has established on our land will disappear, regardless of how long it takes. We will not allow them to hijack our lives and kill our people's dreams, hopes, and aspirations to realize freedom and independence. Ladies and gentlemen, it is regrettable that the policies of the international community and the resolutions of the relevant United Nations bodies regarding a solution for the question of Palestine have until now not been upheld and implemented, resulting in a failure to hold Israel accountable and impose sanctions for its violations of international law, allowing Israel, which claims to be a democratic state, to act as a state above the law. Ladies and gentlemen, there are still some countries that refuse to acknowledge the reality that Israel is an occupying power, participating, rather practicing, apartheid and ethnic cleansing. These countries proudly state that they have shared values with Israel. What shared values are they referring to? What shared values are they referring to? This has made Israel arrogant, emboldening it to reject and violate all United Nations resolutions. At the same time, there are those who demand from the Palestinian people and institutions that believe in the culture of peace and the rule of law to provide explanations and justifications to demonstrate that they do not incite hatred or promote violence.
For example, we have to explain and justify what appears in our curricula, which reflects our narrative and national identity. While no one is demanding to review the Israeli curricula and media, it is there that the world could see the real incitement by Israeli institutions. We reject these double standards. We reject these double standards. Why should we have to clarify and justify providing assistance to families of prisoners and martyrs who are the victims of the occupation and its oppressive policies? We cannot, ladies and gentlemen, abandon our people. And we will continue our efforts until our prisoners are freed. And I salute here the prisoners' heroic stand. If the occupation ends, there will no longer be a prisoner's issue. I cannot but wonder, and I address all people of conscience around the world, is there anyone on this earth who would punish the dead and prevent their families from burying them except those who are deprived of morality and humanity? Until when will this historical injustice against our people continue? Do the states that provide financial and military support to Israel, which it then uses to prolong its occupation and kill Palestinians, do those that remain silent in the face of Israel's aggressive policies, its besieging and suffocating Palestinians, do these states actually believe they're ensuring peace and security for the Israeli people and stability for the region? The answer is no. I say it loud and clear, an emphatic, incontrovertible no. What more do you want from the Palestinian people? We have honored all our obligations under United Nations resolutions. We forced ourselves to endure the suffering imposed upon us, waiting for hope. And what was the result? Historical events over the decades have proven that these international policies towards Israel are misguided. Ladies and gentlemen, as part of unifying our internal front, we reiterate once again that the Palestinian Liberation Organization is the legitimate and sole representative of the Palestinian people. We stress that we are committed to the unity of our people and our land, committed to holding legislative, presidential, and national council elections. As soon as holding such elections in Jerusalem is guaranteed as per signed agreements, we call on the international community to help us bring pressure to bear upon the occupying power to ensure these elections are held in Jerusalem as it is inconceivable that we remain unable to hold elections. And let me say it here once again. We did not cancel the elections, but we only postponed them as we could not hold them in Jerusalem. Until this situation is addressed, we will continue to work on creating the necessary conditions to form a successful national unity government. 
so that we can assist our people everywhere so that we can implement reconstruction plans in the Gaza Strip, which requires a complete end to the aggression throughout the territory of the state of Palestine. I'm glad to reaffirm that the coming months will witness the holding of municipal elections in accordance with the law and elections for all unions and universities are already underway. Ladies and gentlemen, regarding building state institutions, we stress that we have a fully-fledged state with institutions that operate in accordance with the rule of law and the principles of accountability, transparency, democracy, pluralism, respect for human rights, and the empowerment of women and youth. We have acceded to more than 115 legal instruments and international organizations committed to upholding our people's rights and strengthening our legislation and regulations, including those pertaining to human rights. We will continue our efforts to accede to what remains of the 500 international organizations acknowledged by the United Nations. We have taken the initiative of working jointly with human rights organizations and civil society organizations in Palestine to preserve these national accomplishments and to improve the work of our institutions on the basis of the rule of law. I have issued instructions to take all necessary measures to correct any wrongdoing and to continue upholding the rule of law, the freedom of expression, and human rights. And this is the path that we are committed to in my country. I reaffirm to the international community our commitment to political engagement and dialogue as the path to achieve peace, the path for peaceful popular resistance, the path to combat terrorism in all its forms and origins in our region and the world. We have more than 83 agreements with other countries around the world to combat global terrorism. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish to refer here to the constructive dialogue currently underway with the United States administration to resume Palestinian-U.S. relations and to take steps that would ensure that the occupying power would abide by signed agreements. From our side, we are committed to ensuring the success of this dialogue to create conditions conducive to moving swiftly toward the final political settlement that ends the Israeli occupation of our country. And that applies the two-state solution. However, the current and former Israeli governments have persisted in evading the two-state solution based on international law and UN resolutions and insisted on pursuing occupation and military control over the Palestinian people while presenting flimsy, insubstantial economic and security plans as an alternative. 
these un unilateral plans will not achieve security and stability for anyone as they undermine efforts for a genuine peace and prolong occupation and entrench the reality of one apartheid state. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a moment of truth with the occupying power. It seems we are at a crossroads. We have had enough. The situation cannot continue, and our people cannot endure it any longer. I have dedicated my life to achieving peace and chose the path of peaceful, legal, and diplomatic work in international fora. We have extended our hand time and again for peace, and still we cannot find a partner in Israel that believes in and accepts the two-state solution. The leaders of Israel today no longer feel any shame when they arrogantly dismiss this solution that is that enjoys global consensus. I warn that undermining the two-state solution based on international law and UN resolutions will open the way for other alternatives imposed upon us by the situation on the ground. As a result of the continuation of the Israeli occupation of our state, the absence of a just solution for the plight of 7 million Palestinian refugees uprooted from their land in 1948, the systematic theft of Palestinian land and the ongoing crimes of the occupation and the demolition of homes as a means of collective punishment, the killings and the detentions of thousands, including women, sick people and children, the imposition of an inhumane blockade, an unjust blockade on the Gaza Strip and the annexation measures under numerous pretexts and names, including the settlement plant that they now invented in the city of Jerusalem and that we fully reject. All of this coupled with the crime of forcibly displacing Palestinians from their land as part of a policy of racial discrimination and ethnic cleansing pursued by the occupation in the absence of a deterrent international response. Our people will not surrender to the reality of occupation and its, legal, its illegal policies and practices. We will pursue our just struggle to fulfill our right to self-determination and options are available, including returning to a solution based on the partition plan of Resolution 181 of 1947, which gives the State of Palestine 44% of the land, double the territories that we ended up with after 1967. We remind everyone that Israel seized by military force half of the land specified for the state of Palestine in 1948. The solution would be indeed in conformity with international legitimacy. If the Israeli occupation authorities continue to entrench the reality of one apartheid state, as is happening today, our Palestinian people and the entire world will not tolerate such a situation and circumstances on the ground will inevitably 
impose equal and full political rights for all on the land of historical Palestine within one state. In all cases, Israel has to choose. These are the options, and Israel has to choose. Ladies and gentlemen, International law stipulates the right to a free and dignified life and calls on states to take the necessary measures to protect and secure this right, as protection constitutes an indispensable and decisive element for the maintenance of peace, security, stability, and development. In this regard, I call on the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, to work on the basis of relevant United Nations resolutions on protection, including the resolution adopted during the General Assembly Emergency Special Summit held in June 2018, entitled Uniting for Peace. I call upon the Secretary General to take all the necessary steps towards developing an international mechanism for protection as foreseen in his report of August 2018, and I call upon him to activate this mechanism on the borders of the occupied state of Palestine, including East Jerusalem, to avail our people of international protection, the borders of 1967. In parallel and in accordance with the aforementioned resolution, I call upon the Secretary-General to convene an international peace conference in line with the internationally recognized terms of reference and UN resolutions and the Arab Peace Initiative and under the sole auspices of the Middle East Quartet. Ladies and gentlemen, to ensure that our initiative is time-bound, we give Israel the occupying power one year to withdraw from the Palestinian territories it occupied in 1967 including East Jerusalem, and we are ready to work throughout this year on the delineation of borders and solving all final status issues under the auspices of the International Quartet and in accordance with UN resolutions. If this is not achieved, why maintain recognition of Israel based on the 1967 borders? Why maintain this recognition? Moreover, we would go to the International Court of Justice as the highest international judicial body to adjudicate over the legitimacy of the occupation of the land of the Palestinian state and the relevant obligations for the United Nations and states around the world in this regard. All parties will have to abide by the verdict of the court colonialism, occupation and apartheid are prohibited under international law and they are crimes that must be confronted, a structure that needs to be dismantled. The international community's support for this initiative, consistent with international law and United Nations resolutions, may save the region from a grim unknown fate. We all have a chance to live in peace and security to have good neighborly relations, to live each in their own state, 
and delaying the implementation of these steps will keep the region in a situation of turmoil and instability with dire consequences. Do the leaders of Israel dream of maintaining their occupation forever? Do they want this occupation to last forever? Ladies and gentlemen, why should Palestinians continue living either under Israel's racist occupation or as refugees in neighboring countries? Are there no other alternatives? Freedom, for instance? Palestinians everywhere are creative, innovative, hardworking, dynamic people, and the entire world can testify to that. Palestinians deserve to live free in their homeland. From this podium, I call on the sons and daughters of Palestine everywhere around the world to continue their peaceful and popular struggle that has shown the true image of the valiant Palestinian people striving for freedom and independence by resisting occupation and apartheid. I salute our people everywhere and salute all nations and countries that have stood in solidarity with our people during the Jerusalem uprising and the prisoners uprising and against the aggression that claimed the lives of hundreds that spread destruction and displaced thousands of our people in the West Bank, Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. I also salute all those who took part in demonstrations in the United States and Europe and everywhere across the globe to demand an end to the Israeli occupation, apartheid and ethnic cleansing and to call for justice, freedom and self-determination for our people. This is a burgeoning awakening to get to know the true Palestinian story and I urge you all to continue defending the true story and defending the Palestinians' rights to freedom, equality and statehood. Criticizing the aggressive policies and practices of the Israeli occupation and settlers and of the Zionist narrative in general is not an act of incitement or anti-Semitism but rather a duty of every free man and woman in the world. In this connection, I convey to the international community our gratitude and appreciation for their political and material support to our people and for the building of our institutions and national economy. But the time has come to take tangible steps to revive hope and end the Israeli occupation of our land and people and to consolidate the values of justice and peace in our region. I wonder... What prevents countries that recognize Israel from recognizing the state of Palestine since they support the two-state solution? And I say to Israel's leaders, do not oppress and corner the Palestinian people. Do not deprive the Palestinian people of dignity, of their right to their land and state, as you will destroy thereby everything. Our patience and the patience of our people is running out. I reiterate yet again that the Palestinian people will defend their existence, their identity, and will not surrender, will not kneel. They will not leave. They will remain on their land, defending it, defending their fate, pursuing the great journey towards ending the occupation.
the occupation of the lands of the state of Palestine and its capital, East Jerusalem. We say once again, this is our land, our Jerusalem, our Palestinian identity, and we shall defend it until the occupier leaves, as the future belongs to us. And you cannot claim peace and security for yourselves alone. Let us be. Peace be upon you. On behalf of the General Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the State of Palestine for the statement just made. We shall continue with the general debate. Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, that was uh, the President of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, speaking uh, before uh, the United Nations General Assembly 76th session that took place uh, last month. His uh, address was pre-recorded. And uh, right now we want to listen uh, to another uh, address uh, that was delivered uh, at the United Nations General Assembly 76th session by the President of Peru, Socialist President of Peru, uh, Pedro Castillo. Let's listen to uh, President Castillo, who uh, recently took office in this South American state. The Assembly will hear an address by His Excellency Pedro Castillo Terrones, President of the Republic of Peru. May I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome to the United Nations His Excellency Pedro Castillo Terrones, President of the Republic of Peru, and to invite him to address the Assembly. Mr. President of the General Assembly, Mr. Secretary General, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, the 76th session of the General Assembly is taking place in a world context marked by instability and uncertainty. Given this we can be certain that our peoples are demanding answers on the future of the pandemic, peace, security, economic recovery, and the decrease of inequality and poverty. It is up to you, Mr. President, to shoulder the responsibility of leading the General Assembly at this changing and fragile moment. I am convinced that your dexterity, knowledge, and experience will lead us to the best decisions and success in our endeavors. Coinciding with the bicentennial of Peru's independence on the 28th of July of this year, I assumed the presidency of the Republic in a democratic exercise whereby the sovereign will of the people led to a vote for social change with macroeconomic stability and sustainable growth. It is the first time in the history of my country that a school teacher from the rural world has assumed the leadership and destination of my country. I am compelled by my responsibility towards the poor, the disenfranchised, the most vulnerable people, businesses, 
middle classes, and all those who have suffered from the pandemic without exclusion, all Peruvians. The Peru, Peru is a cradle of one of the greatest civilizations in the history of humanity. It is a multicultural country, which is multi-ethnic, and it has staked my government to build a society and a state with roots in the people, with social inclusion that would eliminate inequality, unfair distribution of wealth, and which would build a sound and solid democratic society, a society whereby freedom and civil rights would be guaranteed by a democratic and representative government and state that would drive forward the participation of the people and governments at the subnational level, regional and local levels in all processes in taking decisions that impact the destiny and lives of our people. I reaffirm the vocation and affiliation which is democratic of my government. I reaffirm its commitment to social justice. The task is not just to consolidate the rule of law and the division of powers, but also to make effective in political life the exercise of the rights of the people on a day-to-day -day basis. 25 years ago, and since the last 25 years, the economy of Peru has enjoyed sustained growth, one of the most important economies in Latin America. And notwithstanding this, the ravages of the pandemic on the national economy and the world will impact our responsible management and efficient macroeconomic framework in order to continue expanding and growing and provide better redistribution of income. At the same time, Peru presents indicators of inequality and extreme exclusion, a situation which compromises the values and ethics of a democratic society, impacts the competitiveness of the state and the economy, and that is why it's necessary to provide social transformation that will allow all Peruvian men and women to enjoy their social and economic rights, in addition to fundamental freedoms, civil rights, and political rights. A transformation of all households and every family, their rights and education, health care, decent employment, dignified salaries, social security, access to housing and access to individual life, economics, and the collective, which is respectful of the rights of Mother Earth. We also endorse the historic initiative of Secretary General Antonio Guterres to build a common agenda in the world, in a post-pandemic world, that would establish a new social contract. You have reminded us, Mr. Secretary General, that the 10 richest men in the world combined wealth increased by a half billion dollars since the beginning of the pandemic while we are grappling with the worst employment crisis since the Great Depression, with millions of people out of work or underemployed. Given the unequal distribution of wealth, the Secretary General is asking the world to have a new social contract worldwide, which we fully endorse. The same diagnosis and determination of a new social contract is important for transformative action. When we look at the risks of COVID, which took the lives of more than four and a half million people in the world, and the number of infected with COVID exceeded 220 million in the second consecutive year of this pandemic, and this is the context against which this general debate is taking place. 
vaccines have opened the way and faith for humanity to assume the conviction that we will win this battle. But combating the pandemic has shown and demonstrated the international system incapacity to cooperate under principles of solidarity and efficiency. We need agreements in place that will ensure equitable access to vaccines and their application. Multilateral cooperation is still very much absent in fighting COVID-19. The initiative of a new global agenda should include vigorous and urgent multilateral action to combat the pandemic and allow access for all countries, especially the poorest, to vaccines and health coverage. Peru will be an active and dynamic member in the common effort of all countries gaining access, which is inclusive, equitable, and non-discriminatory to all diagnoses, therapies, medications, and vaccines, as well as to technology and healthcare products, including their components and precursors, as required in responding to COVID-19 as a worldwide priority, including access, which is fair. We must attach greatest priority to strengthening international scientific cooperation to combat the pandemic. We must strengthen initiatives that have been developed with this view in mind, especially given that I want to state on behalf of Peru the signing of a world agreement between heads of state and the owners of patents to guarantee universal access to the vaccine of all inhabitants of the planet without any privileges or discrimination. This would be a serious demonstration of our commitment to life and health for all peoples. Mr. President, it is necessary to adapt the sustainable development goals to the new reality of the post-pandemic world. Peru has a foreign national policy, which is decentralized, autonomous, which is geared to solidarity and cooperation with all entities, state entities and non-state. Social diplomacy is thus a priority for us, as it is today for the United Nations. And thus we pay special attention to the sustainable development goals, which are most pressing for the most needy, for the poorest. The goal of zero hunger should focus the efforts of the international community. It is vital to redouble our action to meet the food needs, the immediate food needs of all vulnerable people. It's vital to stimulate social protection programs, to maintain and increase world trade in food, to maintain the proper functioning of the gears of the national supply chains for food and to support small producers' capacity to increase the production of food. We are also committed to a social development policy which will allow Peru to meet the Millennium Development Goals, especially with regard to access to water, healthcare networks, reducing poverty, eliminating extreme poverty, reducing infant mortality, full access to health care, guaranteeing inclusive and quality education, obtaining gender equality, especially job creation and improving informal employment. 
Jobs are the only lasting antidote to poverty. Healthcare, education, access to water and sanitation cannot be a business which is a profitable one. These are fundamental human rights that we need to guarantee, ensuring universal access, which is of quality, without any discrimination. As a school teacher by profession, I must call the international attention to the million of boys and girls and adolescents around the world who are not in school, who are not being education, a situation which has been worsened by the health care crisis. I am convinced that society's capacity to overcome the complex challenges we must grapple with must include education for our children, our young people. The Secretary General's initiative to agree on a new global social contract should be reflected thus, given the serious impact of the pandemic on schools and education. It should be reflected thus in an initiative to universalize education. Women and girls account for half of the world's population. They are a strong determining force with creative capacity, labor potential, economic and spiritual potential when much be unlocked for our societies. The new global social pact must be a leap forward in the effective exercise of rights for women. These are human rights and they should go beyond recognition. They should be effectively enjoyed at all levels, local, regional, national, and worldwide. We must establish specific and concrete gender equity. We must eliminate all legal, social, and economic obstacles that hinder the empowerment of women and girls. We must fully guarantee their rights and eliminate all social practices and norms which are discriminatory against women. My government will do so. Peru, Mr. President, is thereby linking its national agenda for social development with the priority agenda of the United Nations with the common goal of applying and achieving Agenda 2030. It is time to put forward the social component in international relations and to commit ourselves to all actions, initiatives, and resources of the United Nations being used for the fulfillment of the Sustainable Development Goals. Social diplomacy is not just a national requirement, it is a global imperative. Mr. President, human action without respect for nature has led us to question the viability of the planet. Fighting climate change calls into question our consciences limiting increases of the temperature between 1.5 and 2 degrees, which is a goal that was set forth in the Paris Agreement, is a commitment in its very viability. Meanwhile, desertification continues to clear forests, especially in the Amazon, and the effects of climate change are increasingly devastating. The time has come to rethink our activities to achieve social sustainable development in harmony with the planet with a view to bequeathing a habitable world for future generations. Those countries that most pollute should imperatively meet their obligations. Peru has taken on the goal of becoming a country uh, which is carbon neutral by 2050 and reducing greenhouse gases from 30 to 40 percent thereby respecting what was projected for 2030. 
as an expression of its commitment to the health of the planet, my government will declare the national climate emergency. This assembly once more will be debating the very serious problem of terrorism. Peru has suffered from violent terrorism and has been able to prevail. We are aware of, reject, and condemn terrorism in all of its forms, and we support any action to fight it. We are committed to the global strategy of the United Nations against terrorism. Terrorism can never be a means for social transformation. Violence only leads to destruction, violations of human rights, and victims who are the poorest and the most dispossessed. Terrorism is violence against human dignity, and it is not reconcilable with the values of democratic societies. At the regional level, Peru is committed to international peace and security. It is committed to the respect of international law and an inclusive agenda. Mr. President, I am a teacher who is convinced that if we do not use the governments of all the world to help children move forward, we will not have accomplished anything. The present is fragile for world diplomacy, particularly for multilateralism. But I believe that our collective determination will always be stronger, and I stand convinced that with the initiative of a new global agenda, we can build together a world of peace, a world of friendship, of cooperation, and well-being for one and all. As a teacher, as a government, I must say this to you. Let's invest in education, in an educated people. We'll never be fooled. Thank you. On behalf of the General Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the Republic of Peru for the statement just made, and I request protocol to escort His Excellency. I now give the floor. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, newly elected uh, President of the Republic of Peru, uh, Pedro Castillo, uh, delivering his address at the United Nations General Assembly. 76th session, uh, which took place uh, last month uh, in New York City. Uh, many of the addresses uh, were uh, pre-recorded uh, due to the uh, COVID pandemic of the last year and a half. And uh, now we're going to listen uh, to uh, a representative of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, speaking on behalf of the Supreme Leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, President Kim Jong-un. Let's listen to the DPRK and their address uh, at uh, the United Nations General Assembly 76 sessions just last month. Statement by His Excellency Song Kim, Chair of the Delegation of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. I now give the floor to His Excellency Song Kim, Chair of the Delegation of the Democratic Mr. President, Mr. Secretary-General, distinguished delegates, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you, Mr. Abdullah Shahid, on your election as the President of the 76th Session of the United Nations General Assembly. I expect that your able stewardship will lead this session to a good success. I hope this session will serve as an important occasion for all GN member states 
in the face of unprecedented challenges and crises to share useful experiences with each other in overcoming difficulties, promoting social economic recovery, and opening up a new future through hope. Mr. President, COVID-19, which took the precious lives of about 4.7 million people, is still raging, worsening the socio-economic situations around the globe, such as economic stagnation, racial discrimination, and widening the gap between the rich and the poor. Global warming is giving rise to destructive abnormal weather patterns affecting simultaneously every part of the world. It teaches us a serious lesson that no one should turn a blind eye to the climate change. To make matters worse, due to the selfish and unjust behaviors of some UN member states and specific forces, conflicts and disputes among countries and nations continue with innocent people suffering in many regions of the world, including the Middle East, Africa, and Southeast Asia. It is no exaggeration to say that the international community is faced with the most serious crisis since the founding of the UN. This reality urgently requires all the UN member states to find a proper solution to the problems while remaining more faithful than ever before to the UN Charter, international law, and fundamental principles of international relations, pulling their political will and efforts and strengthening mutual cooperation. Mr. President, I'd like first of all to state the efforts of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea for anti-epidemic work and socio-economic development with a view to making active contribution to the discussion of the theme of this session on recovery from global health crisis and building socio-economic resilience. The circumstances of the DPRK are extremely unfavorable due to the external factors compared with other countries. However, the DPRK is never daunted or captivated by the surrounding circumstances. It is vigorously advancing along the track of development that it has aimed for, based on the most stable and solid political environment in the world overcoming by its own efforts all kinds of disturbing factors and challenges ahead. Proud and precious successes have been achieved thanks to the steady efforts made by the DPRK government for socio-economic development and improvement of the people's living standard. At the present time, it is the core policy of the DPRK government to cope with the global health crisis and climate change with a foresighted plan, and to provide people with more stable and improved living conditions while sustainably increasing the agricultural production. Regarding it as a vital issue to tightly quarantine the inroads of COVID-19, the DPRK government takes comprehensive anti-epidemic measures, evoking on all people empathy and ensuring unity of action. The DPRK delegation believes that in recovery from COVID-19, it is important for each country to take anti-epidemic measures suitable to its specific conditions with a high sense of responsibility for the life and safety of its own people. In the face of the global pandemic still spreading with a protracted nature, 
we will reliably safeguard the life and safety of the people and the well-being of the country by reinforcing the existing anti-epidemic regime with more improved and safer measures. Mr. President, despite the continued global health crisis and abnormal weather conditions, we have made not a few achievements in social and economic development and improvement of the people's living standard. Industrial sector has been placed on the upward track as we have concentrated a lot of efforts on strengthening the country's capabilities for self-supporting development, and a good prospect is opened also in agricultural sector for ensuring the fulfillment of the grain production plan this year on sound footing while minimizing the efforts of disastrous climate. The Workers' Party of Korea invariably maintains it as the supreme principle of its activities to provide the Korean people with a stable life and steadily to improve it. In accordance with the decision made at an important meeting held some time ago, our country has taken measures to regularly provide the children throughout the country with a nutritious food, such as dairy products free of charge at the state expense even at this hard time. Tens of thousands of advanced houses will be built annually at the state's expense and allocated to people thanks to the people-oriented policy of the DPRK government. In regard to the issue of climate change too, the DPRK government has formulated a plan to mainly complete river improvement, afforestation for erosion control, dike maintenance, and tide embankment projects across the country, and to enter into the regular management during the five-year plan period, and it is taking strict measures for crisis management in order to minimize natural disasters, including from flood and typhoon. I want to believe that the achievements made by the DPRK in dealing with the global health crisis and disastrous climate change will make a positive contribution to the efforts of the international community to recover from COVID-19 and build sustainable socio-economic resilience. Difficulties are much bigger than at any time, and big and small challenges and threats exist in the surrounding environments. Even under these circumstances, we have created successes which are fully welcomed and supported by our people, and we are steadily effecting development changes by our own efforts. This is the result of the correct political guidance of our party and the state leadership. All people trust in the party and the government, united in one mind and destiny. Herein lies the invincible power of our state and the source of its inexhaustible strength. Mr. President, the DPRK became the 160th member state of the United Nations when the first plenary meeting of the UNGA at its 46th session adopted a resolution with a unanimity to admit the Republic to its membership on September 17, 1991, 30 years ago. As the country and nation remained divided, our Republic originally could not but consider joining the UN from the perspective of achieving reunification. Therefore, we consistently maintained the position that the North and South of Korea joined the UN with a single name of the country after achieving reunification based on confederacy or to take one common seat if they would join the UN prior to reunification. But the anti-reunification and anti-national attempts got even more undisguised 
to make the national division permanent and legitimate, and to isolate our republic internationally by using the UN membership issue. Against this backdrop, we took a decisive measure to join the UN on our own initiative. The Korean nation, which lived on the same territory for thousands of years with the same bloodline through generations, was artificially divided by the outside forces in the middle of the 20th century and in the end joined the UN with the two seats. This is tragedy indeed. As a result of the World War II, the United Nations was established with a primary responsibility to maintain international peace and security, but contrary to this, the Korean Peninsula was divided into two against the will and aspiration of the Korean nation, thus undergoing constant tensions and instability. Consequently, this became the root cause of pains and misfortunes inflicting upon the Korean nation, which can never be forgotten from generation to generation. Nobody will deny this fact. It is also the desire of the international community to see peaceful resolution of the issue of the Korean Peninsula in the interests of the Korean nation. It is from this viewpoint that I take this opportunity to clarify the position of the DPRK on the root cause of the still unresolved issue of the Korean Peninsula and on the fundamental ways to ensure lasting peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula. Mr. President, the principle of a solution to a problem is to find out its root causes before coming up with a prescription for it. Three decades have passed since the end of the Cold War, but the Korean Peninsula is still in a vicious cycle of ever-looming aggravation of tension and confrontation. Its main root cause lies in the hostile policy towards the DPRK. Until now, no less number of UN member states are not well aware of the fact that the issue of the Korean Peninsula has its origin in the U.S. hostile policy on the DPRK. Worse still, they have a misconception that the U.S. has become hostile towards the DPRK due to the nuclear issue. When it comes to the nuclear issue, it is not the DPRK's position of nukes that the U.S. became hostile towards us. On the contrary, we have traversed an inevitable course of history as the U.S., the biggest nuclear power in the world, has been posing nuclear threats antagonizing the DPRK for more than 70 years. The U.S. hostile policy towards the DPRK is not at all abstract. It is in itself military threats and hostile acts we are facing from the U.S. every day. From the very first day of the foundation of the DPRK, the U.S. has not recognized our sovereignty, treating us as an enemy state and openly showed its hostility towards the socialist system chosen by our people. The U.S. designated the DPRK as a communist state and a state of a non-market economy, and it completely blocked both institutionally and legislatively the establishment of relations between the DPRK and the U.S. in the fields of politics, economy, and trade under the reasonable, unreasonable pretext of a human rights issue, proliferation of the WMD, sponsoring of terrorism, oppression of religion, and money laundering, and etc. If it is not a hostile policy, should it be called a friendly policy? The U.S. hostile policy against the DPRK finds its clearest expression in, the, in its military threats against us. Not a single foreign troop, not a single foreign military base, 
exists in the territory of the DPRK. But in South Korea, almost 30,000 U.S. troops are stationed at numerous military bases, maintaining a war posture to take military action against the DPRK at any moment. The DPRK has no track record of having conducted a military exercise even a single time around the United States, but the U.S. has annually staged all sorts of war drills on and around the Korean Peninsula and in the Korean waters for the last several decades by mobilizing army, naval, air forces across the world, including the U.S. troops in South Korea, and it has threatened us through military demonstrations of intimidating nature while deploying numerous armaments to South Korea from time to time. In August 2021, the U.S. and South Korea defiantly conducted combined commander exercise despite our repeated warnings. This exercise is an outright war drill of offensive nature that simply changed its name of the joint military exercises staged by the U.S. for the last several decades. Inter-Korean relations have never come out of the shadow of the U.S. interference and obstruction, as the U.S. has stationed its troops in South Korea and bound it with the chains of a military alliance, and inter-Korean agreements have never been implemented faithfully owing to the wrong behavior of South Korean authorities, prioritizing cooperation with an alliance over the harmony of the nation. The international community should not overlook one fact. The DPRK-U.S. relations are not merely the relations between unfriendly countries without diplomatic relations, but between the belligerent countries which are legally in a state of war. The possible outbreak of a new war on the Korean Peninsula is contained not because of the U.S.'s mercy on the DPRK. It is because our state is growing reliable deterrent that can control the hostile forces in their attempts of a military invasion. We have stored reliable power to defend ourselves by exerting continuous efforts with a clear insight into the demand of the times, which necessitates us to possess sufficient might for national defense in the face of the geopolitical environment and the balance of power on the Korean Peninsula as well as ever straining international relations. On the earth, there is no country which is under constant threat of war like the DPRK, and so much strong is its people's desire for peace. What we mean by the war deterrent is literally the righteous right to self-defense that can deter aggressive war and defend ourselves. As the whole world knows, and as the U.S. is so much concerned, Powerful offensive means are, of course, included in our war deterrent. However, we do not want to use those means aiming at somebody. In other words, we will never violate or endanger the security of the U.S., South Korea, and our neighboring countries. We are just building up our national defense in order to defend ourselves and reliably safeguard the security and peace of the country. For this reason, we do not imprudently use such expression that we are building a military power which is good enough to deter somebody's provocation. However, military threats against the DPRK by the U.S. and its civil forces are evolving constantly with the passage of time.
Annually, the U.S. spends an astronomical amount of money, amounting to more than 700 billion U.S. dollars, on the development of ultrasonic weapons, long-range precision-guided armament, ICBM of a new generation, nuclear strategic bombers, all of which are bound to be used first against the DPRK in the future Korean War. Recently, the South Korean authorities hell-bent on developing ultra-modern weapons under the tacit approval and patronage of the U.S., and numerous war equipment have been shipped into South Korea. These are all two dangerous moves that break the balance of military power on the Korean Peninsula. Given that the U.S. and South U.S.-South Korean military alliance increase military threats against the DPRK, nobody can deny the righteous right to self-defense for the DPRK to develop, test, manufacture, and possess the weapon systems equivalent to the ones which are possessed or being developed by them. Mr. President, Kim Jong-un, President of the State of Affairs, in his report at the 8th Congress of Workers' Party of Korea, stated that the key to establishing new DPRK-U.S. relationship lies in the U.S. withdrawal of its hostile port towards the DPRK and expressed the principled standard that we would approach the U.S. on the principle of power for power and goodwill for goodwill in the future too. The U.S. has now two options. One is to contribute to the peace and stability of the Korean Peninsula and the world by withdrawing an anachronistic hostile policy towards the DPRK in a bold and complete manner. The successive U.S. administrations have repeatedly expressed their intentions, both in verbal and written forms, that they had no hostile intent towards the DPRK, advocating dialogue with us. But as can be seen in reality, all of those were nothing more than flowery words to cover up their hostile policy. The current U.S. administration should translate its stated policy standard of no hostility towards the DPRK into practical actions. It should also remove the double standards towards the DPRK. If the U.S. shows its bold decision to give up its hostile policy, we are also prepared to respond willingly at any time. But it is our judgment that there is no prospect at the present stage for the U.S. to really withdraw its hostile policy towards the DPRK. Nevertheless, we would not implore the U.S. to abandon its hostile policy towards us. In the course of the DPRK-U.S. showdown spanning over half a century, we have been very much accustomed to the U.S. military threats, and we know well how to deal with the U.S., the most hostile country. We have learned the mode of existence in the face of the U.S. hostile policy and accumulated rich experiences. We will continue to keep eyes on the move of the U.S. policy towards the DPRK. If the current U.S. administration tries to solve the issue of the Korean Peninsula, which had not been solved by the preceding administrations by relying on the anachronistic method of a calculation like the present one, the result would be different from the past. If the U.S. continues to commit acts to threaten us as to provoking us to a quarrel more often than not, and depending on the legacy of the Cold War like the military alliance, it would really turn out to be unfavorable for them. Some time ago, the U.S. administration announced that it had terminated the longest fought war, which lasted for 20 years while withdrawing its troops from Afghanistan. 
But the U.S. is still ignoring the reality that the Korean War has not ended for over 70 years. If the U.S. wants to see the Korean War, the most prolonged and long-lasting war in the world, come to an end, and if it is really desirous of peace and reconciliation on the Korean Peninsula, it should take the first step towards giving up its hostile policy against the DPRK by stopping permanently the joint military exercises and the deployment of all kinds of strategic weapons which are leveled at the DPRK in and around the Korean Peninsula. I am convinced that a good prospect will be opened for the U.S.-DPRK relations and inter-Korean relations if the U.S. refrains from threatening the DPRK and gives up its hostility towards it. Mr. President, Pandemic crisis, climate change, refugee problem, and endless disputes among countries are arising as burning issues in the world. Backdrop to this lies the self-serving policies of interference of the U.S. and the West. The Afghan crisis has claimed the lives of tens of thousands of innocent people and triggered the flow of millions of refugees, as well as the collapse of the state and social system. This is a clear testimony to the tragic consequences caused by the open use of armed forces against a sovereign state, interference in the internal affairs, and occupation of foreign troops. The reality urgently demands that the United Nations turn into a fair international organization with a strong executive power discharging its inherent mission in conformity with the purposes and principles of the UN Charter. What comes as urgent task here is to make the United Nations Security Council an impartial and responsible organ which substantially contributes to maintaining international peace and security as explicitly stipulated in the UN Charter. The UN Security Council is not a political instrument with which some big powers decide at their own wills the international relations and the destiny of a sovereign state with a yardstick of double standards on the basis of their interests and priorities. The UNSC does not say a single word about the reckless arms build-up and war criminal act by specific countries such as the US and its following forces. It instead finds fault with the just self-defensive measures of the DPRK at every chance. This is telltale evidence that the UN does not represent the interests of a broader spectrum of the international community, but rather degenerates into an inner room for a few privileged groups. In order to prevent the high-handedness and arbitrariness of the UN Security Council, representation of developing countries, which take a majority in the UN, should be increased. It is also imperative that the rules and procedures of the UN should be revised so that the resolutions adopted at the UN Security Council could be rejected by UNGA resolution containing the will of the overwhelming majority of member states when necessary. Next, for the UN to be a fair organization with a practical ability, we should revitalize the work of the UN based on the principles of sovereign equality, respect for equal rights, and self-determination of the people. Ensuring sovereign equality and respect for equal rights and self-determination of the people constitutes the hard core of the UN Charter, and it is the cornerstone of the very existence of the UN. 
Some member states try to unilaterally impose the Western values and rules-based international order upon sovereign states behind the signboard of defending democracy and protecting human rights. Such an attempt to interfere in the internal affairs is a gross violation of the principle of sovereign equality. Chaos, disorder, bloodshed, and violence continue unabated in some countries owing to foreign intervention. These unhappy events prove that the human rights are immediately sovereign rights and that if it is lost, people cannot avoid the fate of a stateless nation fraught with disgrace and humiliation. The UN should get away with double standards as well as unjust behavior of leaning towards the positions of some countries and specific force. It should ensure full impartiality and fairness as required by the UN Charter, the backbone of which is the principle of sovereign equality, respect for equal rights, and self-determination of the people. The DPRK delegation avails itself of this opportunity to extend its full support and encouragement to the Cuban government and people who continue to move forward holding aloft the banner of socialism in the face of the U.S. moves to impose illegal sanctions and blockade and to undermine Cuba from within. I also express our constant support and solidarity with independent countries, including Syria, Palestine, and their peoples, and the, in their unyielding struggle to defend the national dignity, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. Mr. President, the DPRK remains unchanged in its underlying foreign policy of the ideas of independence, peace, and friendship. In the future, too, the DPRK will discharge its responsibilities and duties to strengthen friendship and unity with all countries of the world which respect our sovereignty, achieve genuine international justice and equality, and to ensure peace and security on the Korean Peninsula and in the rest of the world. Thank you. I thank the Chair of the Delegation of Democratic People's Republic of Korea for his statement. I now give the floor to His Excellency Ali Dian, Chair of the Delegation of Guinea. Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, that was a speech uh, by uh, the head of the United Nations delegation to the uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, known in the West as North Korea. And uh, he was speaking at uh, the United Nations General Assembly 76 session that took place just last month uh, in New York City, and many of the addresses uh, were delivered as well uh, as pre-recorded. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with our concluding segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal.
Welcome back. And that was uh, the music of the flirtations, uh, nothing but a heartache. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, special radio broadcast uh, for today. And, uh, of course, uh, today is Sunday, uh, October 11th, the one, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to our program. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access uh, to uh, this uh, broadcast uh, for today, uh, Sunday, uh, October 11, 2021, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And our website is blogtalkradio.com forward slash Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Journal. Not only can you hear uh, this uh, broadcast, uh, podcast, uh, but uh, well over 1,000 other archived editions uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal dating back uh, several years. And uh, the links uh, can be shared uh, by copying and pasting them into emails and sending them out to other potential listeners. You can also copy and paste the links on blogs and websites. And the links can also be shared through social media networks uh, such as Facebook and Twitter. And uh, you're listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And, uh, of course, uh, we are here every week uh, dealing uh, with some of the most pressing and uh, burning issues of the day. And, of course, this uh, program uh, is one uh, that uh, is among many, many other programs uh, put out uh, by uh, the Pan-African Radio Network, the uh, Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, these programs are well-researched, and uh, they are, of course, uh, designed uh, to advance uh, discussion and debate on, uh, of course, all of these very, very important uh, issues uh, that we face, you know, as African people uh, throughout uh, the entire globe. And, uh, of course, um, there are many uh, developments that you can read about uh, in uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Uh, they can be read uh, on a daily basis. Uh, the Pan-African Newswire is a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day uh, uh, news service uh, that, of course, uh, deals uh, with many, many important issues uh, impacting African people and the international community in general. So, therefore, uh, we want to encourage everyone uh, to listen uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now, uh, we'll take a musical break, and uh, we'll be back with the concluding segment of our program.
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and um, that was music of the Abyssinians uh, with the song entitled I and I. And uh, concluding, uh, we're going to listen uh, to a lecture uh, by yours truly, excerpts from a lecture that was delivered in August of uh, 2016 at the uh, First Unitarian Universalist Church in the city of Detroit, located in the Midtown District. And uh, the title of this lecture is Race, Class, and Justice in America. Let's listen in. To send me a bio, he sent a list that was pretty much 500 words long. So I will share some of what was listed there. Abayomi Azikwe is the editor of the Pan-African Newswire and a co-founder of several Detroit area organizations, including the Detroit Coalition Against Police Brutality, the Michigan Emergency Committee Against the War and Injustice, the Moratorium Now Coalition to Stop Foreclosures, Evictions, and Utility Shutoffs. He is a graduate of Wayne State University, where he earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science, public administration, and educational and administrative studies. He has worked as a broadcast journalist for the past 17 years and has hosted and co-hosted programs on several radio stations locally and in Canada. He has appeared on numerous television and radio networks, including Al Jazeera, CCTV, BBC, NPR, Radio Netherlands, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Belgian Pirate Radio, TBC, Nigeria, and many more. He has published numerous articles, pamphlets, and books on African affairs. Azikwe has traveled extensively in Africa, conducting field research on political economy and history. I know Mr. Azikwe best as the voice on the megaphone leading the MLK march through the streets of Detroit each January. He is one of Detroit's rare activists who seem to have the ability to be in multiple places at once. Please welcome now, Abayomi Azikwe. Good morning. I want to thank uh, Nita for that very uh, generous uh, introduction. And I'm gratified uh, to honor, uh, once again, another invitation uh, to the Detroit uh, Unitarian Universalist Church, uh, where I've spoken uh, before, uh, from this pulpit, as well as other areas of this uh, historic structure. It is important uh, that this institution remain within this area uh, that is now known as uh, Midtown, uh, the Unitarian uh, Universalist Church uh, has been a beacon of solidarity uh, with an open door to those uh, who have ideas and personal instincts that challenge uh, the dominant intellectual and spiritual canons uh, that have shaped the United States and the world uh, over the last uh, several 
centuries. Now our topic uh, today uh, addresses three of the most important unresolved questions of the 21st century. Where we find ourselves uh, in a global community uh, with the capacity to rapidly and effectively communicate and to influence those around the world. Despite, uh, though, our technological achievements and the ability to generate, uh, to calculate, to analyze, to disseminate, and defile data, the world system of capitalism has failed miserably uh, to provide an adequate standard of living to the majority of humanity around the world. And that includes right here in the United States. Right here in the city of Detroit, people are being driven out uh, through state-sponsored efforts that utilize tax revenue of working families uh, to evict and displace those who are literally paying for their own oppression and exploitation. Thousands more remain without water right here in this city due to the egregious cutoffs. And in the case of Flint, where the water is not even fit to drink. Although there have been uh, nine indictments uh, related uh, to the Flint uh, water crisis, uh, there's been a civil suit as well filed by the Michigan Attorney General, uh, Bill Schutte, uh, in Lansing. Uh, objectively, there's been no real effort uh, that has uh, been undertaken to rebuild the majority African-American city of Flint as a wholesome and safe place to live and work. Now a situation has arose uh, over the disposal of trash in Flint as well, compounding the problems related to lead poisoning in children, Legionnaires' disease, skin problems, and inflated water bills for an unclean product that uh, in many cases cannot even be utilized. How, I ask, uh, can the treatment of people in major metropolitan, industrial, and service center areas be allowed to deteriorate to such a degree without high-level officials being held accountable by their fellow politicians and by the court system? Where does the federal government step in to ostensibly, ostensibly protect the civil rights of ordinary residents from tyranny, the tyranny of their local governments, and private corporations. The wealthiest people within society today are excused from paying adequate taxes and are allowed to expropriate the working people and the poor, many of whom are black and brown. Now, the question of race, class, and justice in America go to the cornerstone of the challenges that we face uh, here in the United States and indeed internationally in the second decade of the 21st century. I want to make reference to uh, race as a social construct. Now race as a biological construct has been largely discredited uh, by modern historians and social scientists, evolutionary biologists, and geneticists. Nonetheless, um, in the modern period, uh, there have been uh, so-called scholars, and I put that uh, term in quotes, that have suggested that African people are inherently inferior 
to Europeans. Now these uh, pseudo-scientific and racist academic arguments are advanced uh, utilizing the tools of the research academies without providing adequate controls or acknowledgments of the socio-historical circumstances surrounding the nationally oppressed communities. By attributing a biological basis for performance, the incapacity uh, for integration, and actuality provides a rationale for the maintenance and even the reinforcement of the social status quo in America. In fact, these arguments of African inferiority were utilized to justify the enslavement of millions of people within North America, as well as throughout the entire Western Hemisphere, in South America, in Central America, in the Caribbean. The belief that Europeans only have something to offer the peoples of the oppressed world and nothing to learn from them is not a view based on historical assessment but one rooted in the colonial and imperialist thought processes. Now although historians of Western civilization uh, trace its antecedents back to ancient Greece, they failed to cite the writings of many of the historians and philosophers such as Herodotus who wrote in first-hand accounts on their travels to Egypt in the 5th century BC. Herodotus' observations are at variance with the notions of an uncivilized and inferior people. Of course, many Western historians have claimed that in the past that Herodotus was just a storyteller. He was not only one who wrote off the ancient Egyptians and Ethiopians uh, as, of course, being the progenitors of world civilization and wrote about them in, in, in very glowing terms in his books. Now, in the modern period, a man by the name of Arthur Jensen, uh, in a 1969 article that was published in the Harvard Educational Review, suggested that African Americans, uh, based upon their general performance on IQ tests, had lower capacity for learning than did whites. One must keep in mind that this theory generated much controversy, and it came out during a period of militant mass struggle against racism by the African American people. Another ideological and pseudo-scientific racist, uh, the late uh, William Shockley, who did work on the transistors uh, in the 1950s and the 1940s, also advanced similar views on African-American genetic inferiority. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, based in uh, Alabama, uh, which monitors racist organizations and racist thoughts, it says on its website that, quote, despite having no training whatsoever in genetics, biology, or psychology, Shockley devoted the last decades of his life in a quixotic struggle to prove that black Americans were suffering from, quote, dysgenesis, unquote, or, quote, retrogressive evolution, unquote, and advocated replacing the welfare system with a, quote, voluntary sterilization bonus plan, unquote, which, as its name suggests, would, play, would pay low IQ women to undergo sterilization. Although his theories were universally condemned uh, by biologists and racists as racist pseudoscience, Shockley partly succeeded in rehabilitating eugenics 
as an ideology by providing the foundation for a new, more politically savvy generation of academic races, including Arthur Jensen, who we mentioned earlier, uh, Richard Lynn, as well as Charles Murray, unquote. Now this same uh, Southern Poverty Law Center website also says that, quote, William Shockley's importance in the development of modern electronics cannot be overstated. While working at Bell Labs during the 1940s and 1950s, Shockley led the team that invented the transistor, for which he and his collaborators won numerous prizes and awards. In 1965, however, some 51 years ago, Shockley's career took an abrupt turn from an internationally famous physicist to a racist crank when he gave an address at a Nobel conference on genetics and the future of man. In his lecture, Shockley warned of the threat of a, quote, genetic deterioration, unquote, and, quote, evolution in reverse, unquote. Problems exacerbating, he claimed, by the Great Society welfare programs that allow the less genetically fit to reproduce at will, free from the constraints of natural selection, unquote. Just within the last two decades, another book written under the cloak of academic legitimacy entitled The Bell Curve is described as follows uh, by the IntelTheory.com website. It says, quote, The Bell Curve, uh, which was published in 1994, was written by Richard Hernston and Charles Murray as a work designed to explain, using empirical statistical analysis, the variations in intelligence in American society. It raises some warnings regarding the consequences of this intelligence gap and proposed national social policy with the goal of mitigating the worst of the consequences attributed to this intelligence gap. Many of the assertions are put forward and conclusions reached by the authors are very controversial, ranging from the relationship between low measured intelligence and what they describe as antisocial behavior, to the observed relationship between low African-American test scores compared to whites and Asians, and genetic factors and intelligence abilities. The book was released and received with a large public response. In the first several months of its release in 1994, 400,000 copies of the book were sold around the world. Several thousand reviews and commentaries have been written in the short time since the book's publication, unquote. Now, what does this really mean, the whole notion of academic racism and pseudoscientific racism and the whole concept of race? Well, in my opinion and in the, in the opinion of many others, race in actuality is a social construct. It is designed to rationalize and justify the political and social and economic status quo that we find in the United States and indeed the world. W.B. Du Bois, uh, who was born in uh, 1868 in the immediate aftermath of the U.S. Civil War in Massachusetts, was a Harvard graduate uh, who in 1896 wrote his doctoral dissertation on the suppression of the Atlantic or the African slave trade. Some seven years later in his work entitled Souls of Black Folk, he foresaw the role of racism within the global oppressive system over the course of the 20th century. Du Bois said in chapter two of this seminal work entitled The Souls of Black Folk that quote, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of a color line, 
the relation of the darker to the lighter races of men in Asia and Africa, in America and the islands of the seas. It was a phase of this problem that caused the Civil War. However much they who marched south and north in 1861 may have fixed on the tactical points of the Union and local autonomy as a shillabut, all nevertheless knew, as we know, that the question of Negro slavery was the real cause of the conflict. Curious it was, too, how this deeper question even forced itself to the surface despite efforts and disclaimer. No sooner had northern armies touched southern soil than this old question, newly guised, sprang from the earth. What shall be done with Negroes? Peremptory military commands this way and that could not answer the query. Du Bois goes on to say the Emancipation Proclamation seemed but to broaden and intensify the difficulties, and the war amendments made the Negro problems of today, unquote. He wrote this 113 years ago. Today in 2016, I would venture to say that the problem of racism and racial discrimination continues into the second decade of the 21st century. The disproportionate rates of police killings, vigilante violence, and incarceration are a reflection of the systematic racial profiling and a culture of impunity directed against African Americans. Moreover, the failure of the local, state, and governmental structures to address the issues is even a far greater crime, in my opinion. The votes of the African American people directed towards the Democratic Party, for all its intents and purposes, objectively mean very little. Beyond the symbolism of the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia a week before last, where many African Americans are served as delegates and spoke from the rostrum, what they carried away back to their home areas in all likelihood will not amount to much in the way of political capital, let alone financial resources. These factors within the context of the broader political landscape guides us into the second area of concern today and that is, how does race and class merge into a system of national discrimination and economic exploitation? For nearly... Welcome back. And um, that was uh, a message for the day uh, delivered uh, uh, during August of 2016 at the Detroit uh, Unitarian Universalist Church, uh, delivered by yours truly, Alpayomi Azikawe, editor of the Pan-African Newswire and host of the Pan-African Journal, and that will conclude uh, our program uh, for today. Uh, we're now in the early morning hour of October the 11th, uh, Monday, October the 11th, and uh, we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again to uh, yet another edition of our program and um, you can log on uh, to uh, this program and listen to it again, share it with other potential listeners by going to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, you can also read the Pan-African Newswire seven days a week, 24 hours a day at panafricannews.blogspot.com. 
We'll be closing out uh, with the sound of Detroit's own Kenny Burrell and Ray Bryant uh, from the LP entitled No Problem. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Thank you.